The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, it is uh, good to be with you all in the early service. Bill had sort of posed to the congregation the question of, of, of how did the last month go? <laughs> well, for us, uh, it, was, it was a busy last couple of months. And so we've... Um, transitioned from Chattanooga and said our goodbyes and we sold a house in 48 hours and we bought a house here and we put our kids in school and uh, so we're ready to rest. Um, I don't know if that's coming anytime soon uh, but, we're, but we're here and that's the big thing and so during that season we, we had a lot of travel. We made several trips down here uh, just to look for homes and to do different things and get situated. But one of the things that we noticed, kind of saying our goodbyes to Chattanooga, is you're traveling north on 75 coming out of Atlanta. You'll, as you're heading towards Chattanooga, you'll begin to see some billboard signs. And one of the things those signs are pointing to is a place called Rock City. And Rock City is a, is a, a tourist attraction in Chattanooga. It's up on Lookout Mountain. And one of the things that they uh, really kind of bill and, and, and promote from Rock City is C7 states. C7 states. Now, according to Wikipedia, no one has confirmed whether or not you can actually see seven states. But what they say is that you can see Tennessee, which I can confirm, and Georgia and Alabama and North Carolina. They also say that you can see Virginia, Kentucky, and South Carolina, which is probably the harder ones to confirm but the reason why they say this is that when you gain the altitude of Lookout Mountain and facing east with a, a wonderful panoramic view to the, to the west, to the north, and, or partially to the west, but to the west and the east and to the north, you can see all these different uh, peaks and, and valleys. And it gives you the perspective because of the low-lying Tennessee Valley that, that lays out before you. And in that um, C7 states... Uh, you get this beautiful, breathtaking view. Oftentimes, you, it's not a view that you would get from a, a high peak that is surrounded by other peaks. Now, the trouble with that is if you were to go up there and you were just to say, okay, well, what am I looking at? Uh, you may not know. And so it's helpful to have someone to explain. Now, now here are some of the high points. This is Georgia's to your, you're looking at Georgia in front of you, and you're looking at Tennessee to your left, and Alabama's down there. Well, that's kind of what's happening in this passage that we're looking at this morning in Isaiah 11. This series, this Advent series, has focused on our King has come, the, the first Advent, or first coming of Jesus Christ. But as we're rounding out this series in this last Sunday of the year, we're looking to his coming, his second coming, his, his return. And so this passage in Isaiah is one of those that is my microphone slide down. Let me, I'm not used to boy band mics. Um, the, uh, as, um, as you're looking out uh, in Isaiah, you, you get this panoramic view of God's redemptive history, of his plan that is, is unfolded out in front of us. And so Isaiah's writing some 700 years before the birth of Christ. 
And he's certainly in the first half talking about Christ's coming, the, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, which we'll read in just a second. But he's also looking beyond uh, the, the focus of his first coming towards the reality of his second coming, which I hope you'll see in the, the latter half. And so in this, this time that we have this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah's announcement of the surprising plan of God's grace and glory and, and his king who comes and he establishes his kingdom and the flourishing of his kingdom. In this passage, what we're really going to see is that, that Jesus has come. Jesus, our king, reigns and rules and is redeeming everything that sin has ruined and ravaged. And so as we look at this passage, I hope that you'll kind of have that kind of operating in the back of your minds as we look at Isaiah 11. In the first verse, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he see, what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and, e and from Egypt, from Pathros and from Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamtha and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it with seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as, they, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord 
And as Isaiah says in chapter 40, the grass withers and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In this passage this morning, as we're looking at all the things that Jesus as our king has redeemed and restored, all those things that sin has ruined and ravaged, what we're going to look at in the first half is the fitness of the king. And we're going to see the qualities and characteristics that, that, that have been endowed upon this Messiah, upon this uh, shoot from the stump of Jesse, and how he will reign. And the second part of what we're going to see is that in his reign, how it will bring about the flourishing of a kingdom. A flourishing of a kingdom that, that even in our wildest imagination is far more brilliant and beautiful than we could even wonder or dream and it's something that I hope that as we are looking forward to 2019, but yet reflecting on 2018, it is something that will stir us with, with a sense of hope. That regardless of what circumstances may come, of, of what diagnosis we would receive, or the, the continuation of the volatile stock market, that, that our hope would be sure and fast on the King who has come, and the King who will come again. So first, let's look at the fitness of the king, the fitness of the king. In this passage, this prophecy, this, 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 this announcement of God's surprising plan, what is surprising about this passage is that in Isaiah 10, God has talked about his judgment that he is going to pour out on the nations. Not just Israel and not just Judah, but also upon Assyria. Now, Assyria was a national threat. In this day and age, it was the world superpower and it was threatening to come in and, and take over Israel. And in this passage, what, what before this is to happen, God is giving this prophecy. And in verse 33, he he gives us what is rather unforgettable imagery. He, the Lord tells Isaiah, he says, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power the great in height will be brought will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Le and lebanon will fall by the majestic one what this is painting before we get into isaiah 11 is it's painting this picture of a forest that once had tall strong trees and was brilliant and vibrant with life but what has happened in, in the judgment of the Lord is he has brought all of those trees down to the stump. And so as you look out on this expanse, this, this massive acreage of a forest that is nothing but stumps. If you've ever seen a clear-cut forest, it, it isn't altogether impressive. It's somewhat depressing. And so there's this depressing, depressing scene as the Lord has brought his judgment upon a rebellious people. The rebellious people of Israel, the rebellious nations of the world, and that he has brought them down in their, their pride and their arrogance. But it doesn't leave us in this depressed state. It tells us in verse 1 that, that from this utter desolation, from these stumps, and particularly the stump of Jesse, shall come forth a shoot. So as you imagine this in your mind and looking at this, this, this vast territory of, of all these stumps, all of a sudden we see this, this twig, this shoot 
rising from the midst that's green and lush. And it's a sign of hope. And it's, it's from this sign that, that Isaiah is, is prophesying to the people and giving them a glimpse of God's redemptive plan. That, that even in man's disobedience and in his rebellion, he, he isn't able to stop what God has intended. And so that from this shoot... We see the one that, the, that he is pointing towards that is the object of our hope. And, and we ultimately know that this is none other than the person of Jesus. The one who was from the line of David, who God had promised would always have one to sit on the throne. And so Jesus was from the line of David. And it tells us in this passage that the character and quality of his reign will be one that has been equipped by the Spirit. And in, and in this, we see three pairs of how Jesus has been equipped. It says first that he is equipped with wisdom and understanding. In this passage, the emphasis is on understanding, which is really to see to the heart of the matter. So this king will have wisdom. He will have discernment to be able to ascertain what is really going on and get to the heart of the situation to know what is really going on. He won't be fooled by appearances or schemes. He'll see straight through all of those things. The next it says that that the spirit of counsel and might will will rest upon this one. That this idea of counsel and might is one of military strategy. It it is one of of being able to put together a long-term plan and the ability and resources to see it through to completion. It's not simply just a matter of willingness but also the ability to see it through. So this isn't talking about just some haphazard king who has Pollyanna-ish ideas. No, this is one who has set a course and has has measured it and and measured it twice and is ready to only cut once. That, That he will bring about his kingdom and he will rule it in a way that is fair. The third thing it says is that, that probably the most defining in these three pairs of moving from the lesser to the greater, that the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that, that the fear of the Lord in verse three, it says, will be his delight. It will be his joy. It will be his source of satisfaction. This idea of the fear of the Lord is certainly talking about a healthy respect, but it's a healthy respect, but it's even beyond that. This idea in verse three is that this this one, this Messiah, this king, that his, his knowledge of the Lord is so intimate. His relationship is so intertwined that he trembles to disobey. He trembles to falter and not accomplish the task that he's been given by God. And so what this is assuring us is that he will see these things through. He is going to rule with righteousness. And that he will judge with fairness. And he's not only led by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, as it tells us in the second half of three. He looks and he sees. He isn't wowed by the affluence or the the wisdom or the um, impressiveness of of a certain group. Or or he isn't overwhelmed and, and sympathetic towards a people who maybe have been outcast and downtrodden. No, he rules all folks because he seeks all of their flourishing. What he knows is that so often those who have been given much leverage their resources for their own flourishing at the expense of someone else. 
And so what we're seeing in this passage is that this king uses his resources, his abilities, his, his endowments from the Lord, and he leverages them, he risks them for the flourishing of others, for the flourishing of those who can't bring about the flourishing that they desire for themselves. And this is, is the rule and the reign of the king, and what this brings is a flourishing in the kingdom. It brings a mighty flourishing in the kingdom. And in verse 6, what we see is that this is taking us and it is pointing forward to a day and an age that we have yet to see. It, it is taking us towards a flourishing that is beyond anything we really understand. The, these, these verses capture our minds. It tells us that the wolf will dwell with the lamb, that the that the leopard shall lie with the young goat. The, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf will all be friends. And they'll be led by a little child. You see, this, what this passage is, is talking about is it's talking about the reconciliation of old hostilities. That the, that the age-old relationship between predator and prey, that the hostility between those will be removed. That there is an utter world transformation through the redemption of this king and that the flourishing that he brings, that the, that the reign that he has will, will bring about an end to these hostilities. Some folks, some commentators look at these passages and what they try to assign is, is different national identities to all the different animals that we see here. And, and maybe that is true. But what it will even then be telling us is that there will be peace. There will be shalom. That there will be the absence of conflict for it will be resolved because there will be one true and triumphant and ascendant king. And his name is Jesus. And as we look at this passage and we see that these old hostilities have been reconciled, this is something that marks the flourishing of the kingdom. The second thing that I think we see in this passage, apart from from the reconciliation of old hostilities is the curse has been removed. Hostilities have been reconciled and the curse has been removed. Now, where do I see that? In verse 8, it says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Since we've moved to South Carolina... We have become familiar with small children with local threats. We've been told about and seen with our eyes for the first time alligators. We've also been told to watch out for snakes, to be mindful of pine straw because the copperhead, which is familiar to us in Chattanooga, could be there. And I, I, I just confess that with, with little kids in a new area and wanting them to explore their, explore their surroundings and discover new things, it, it's a startling thought. And so in this passage, it tells us that, that because of those hostilities being removed, that, that we shouldn't fear. That there, there is a day to come where we won't fear, but it's also telling us this idea of a curse. Now, any good little Jewish child who had been taught the Bible by a good Jewish mother would have known that in Genesis 3 and in verse 15, after Adam and Eve had, had disobeyed God and rejected him as their king, 
that God brought a punishment or a judgment upon the serpent. And in that punishment, it is said that that the Lord would put enmity, hostility, between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. Now, maybe, maybe this is a stretch for some, but I think it is brilliant, the idea that, that the hostility between the serpent and the child had been removed. And why has it been removed? Because the child, the promised one, has crushed the head of the serpent. It is no longer a threat. And so what we find is that this is pointing forward, pointing us forward to that day. And the reality is, as we're looking across this panoramic expanse of God's redemptive history, that, that we live in that day. And that serpent is Satan. Now, that's not saying that we shouldn't be mindful of reptile friends in our gardens. And, and, and we shouldn't, right now, send our children out to play. But what it is saying is there is a day coming. And friends, it will. When... when we can send our children out to play and discover God's creation with no worry, with no anxiety, with no fear. This is, is what it's pointing us towards, that this curse has been removed, that old hostilities have been reconciled. And then as these old hostilities have been reconciled, it talks in the latter part about Judah and Ephraim, two different tribes of Israel and how they had harassed and, 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 and were jealous of one another. Those hostilities are removed. In that same passage, it talks about how the nations who had harassed and, 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 and were jealous of Judah and Ephraim, that, that those things are removed. And that, that the nations, from the nations, people are gathering to the Lord. And that's the third thing, is that God will, will re, re recover, Will He will restore, He will reclaim His people and they will return to Him. In verse 10, it, it gives us this idea. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse. Going back to verse 1, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of Him shall the nations inquire and His resting place shall be Glorious, And in the Hebrew, it literally says, and his resting place shall be glory. This is saying that there's a day coming when, when the ascendant king Jesus will be so known that all throughout the world will look to him with their hope. And they won't put their hope on things and misplace their hope on things of this world. But they will look to him and be satisfied that their joy and delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And as it says in this verse, in verse 9, this, this little phrase that I love, it says, Why shall these things happen? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. Love that passage. And I don't understand it all at the same time. Last night, Hattie Grace, my middle daughter, we, we have been here for a few weeks and we haven't been to the beach. And so we had unpacked things and I'd put up toilet paper, you know, holders and we towel, towel holders in our house. And I said, I was going a little stir crazy. I said, we're going to the beach. 
we're here. The Lord has called us here. Let's go see the beach. And, and I tell you, I, I, it was the first time in my life that I've ever been on the sea, beach when it wasn't tourist season. I've been one of those folks. And, 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 and I was just wowed by God's creation. And as I was looking at the waters and the, the, the waves rolling in, I, I thought about this verse. And I said, what does it mean that the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. What this, I think, is telling us is that the knowledge of the Lord will be so intertwined, so encompassing, so full and overflowing of the Lord pouring out His grace and His glory and that there will be no distinction between the two. You won't be able to separate them. It'll just be the way that it is. And that His shalom, that His people will find rest in His glory. Friends, this is pointing us to a, a beautiful reality. And in, and in Isaiah, this is pointing us forward to, the, to kind of a fullness of, of looking forward to a day when all things will be made right. And, and it talks about these things in Isaiah 65. And, and I want you to think about these verses for a few minutes, and we're going to see where they tie up in the end. It says in verse 17 of chapter 65 in Isaiah, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Skipping to the end of the chapter in Isaiah 65, it says, But before they call... I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And hear these words. Isaiah is quoting himself. He says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about when Jesus returns. He's talking about the new heavens, the new earth. When Jesus comes back as a triumphant and, and mighty king and puts to an end definitively all those things that sin ruins and ravages. It, it will utterly eradicate sin. It's almost as if in his first coming that were D-Day. And for those of you who served in the military or family served, we are so grateful for you. But when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy and Omaha and the other beaches and, and took a foothold, that military victory pointed to and almost made certain of victory, of V-Day. And so Jesus' first coming was landing and, and, and putting a beachhead on Normandy, and it was assuring us of V-Day. And so what Isaiah is doing is he is showing us the reality of what is to come and what we see when we look forward to the end of the book. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He isn't making all new things. He's making everything that we see new and to reflect the glory that he had intended it to be. And it's going to be far more wonderful than we can imagine. It's going to be far more beautiful than we can dream. And it is what awaits those who have put their hope in Jesus, who by grace and through faith have trusted in him, that that he died on the cross for their sins and that he is coming again. And that when he comes again, he is coming to set everything that sin has ruined and ravaged. I know I've said that multiple times, but repetition is the key to learning. That everything that sin has ruined and ravaged, he's going to redeem and restore. And this is the hope that we have. And this is what, what, what Isaiah is clinging to. And so as we lean in to 2019, friends, where will your hope be? This passage reminds us in many ways, as Scripture does time and time again, that God is sovereign. That He is in control over all things. And He governs and controls all His creatures and all their activities. And there is nothing that is beyond the scope of His power. But it also reminds us that God is good. That God desires our flourishing. He desires us to prosper. And that may not necessarily be the way you think you should prosper, but the way He desires for you to prosper is far more wonderful. And not only is He sovereign and is He is good, He is purposeful. He is moving all things towards the fullness of His redemptive plan. We may not be able to see it. We may be in Rock City, looking out, trying to discern where Kentucky and Virginia are, and I confess I don't know where they are. And it may be that you today are looking out and you said, I've heard these stories that Jesus will return, that he will come again, but Lord, it's been so long. When will this happen? And you see signs and hear rumors and stories, and there's all these different things of what people say will happen. Well, what we know is that he wins and that he comes again. So in the meantime, he's given us a task. Not only are we to know the fullness of who he is and what he's done, but we are to make him known. And so I didn't say this in the first service. There's always in the second service you get a little extra added bonus. But let me just give you a a challenge. This year, find a note card. Make a a mental note, a, a note on your iPhone or what have you. And think of three people that you could start praying for. Three people in your community, in your workplace, in your, your spheres of influence, the, the places where you run and play and live and do things. And just begin praying for them. And just see what God does. And then as, as you're, you're praying for them, maybe you can invite them to come to Milton Head Presbyterian or, or another church. It doesn't have to be here. There's other churches that love Jesus a lot and are, are telling people about Jesus and doing wonderful good things, but just invite them to church. But, if, but, but, if, but maybe you say, well, you know, I'd rather tell them about Jesus. Well, maybe you just do it yourself. 
Just tell them about Jesus, the hope that you have in him. So this year, 2019, next year, I guess, technically, um, pray for three people and look for an opportunity to talk to one of them about Jesus. Because that would be fulfilling what what this passage is talking about and, and us being a participant in God's mission and and in his plan of, of, of reclaiming everything that he's lost and, and people hearing the good news of Jesus and what he's done and who he is. And that through the might of the Spirit and through the, 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 the mystery of his grace that he would apply his mercy to those folks' hearts. And that we would have reason to rejoice for what he continues to do in our midst. You see, friends, this is something that may be hard to discern from our vantage point now, but as we look out, what we are assured of is that the Lord is taking us to a place that is glorious and that He will return for His people. Let us pray.